one of our most fundamental characteristics, going back to Abraham, is insane argumentativeness. This is who we are as a society, as a people, as a country. From the Jewish Founders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pokoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we are speaking with Einat Wilf. Einat is a leading thinker on Israel, Zionism, foreign policy, and education. She was a member of the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, from 2010 to 2013, where she served as chair of the Education Committee and member of the influential Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee. Born and raised in Israel, Einat served as an intelligence officer in the IDF, foreign policy advisor to Vice Prime Minister Shimon Peres, and a strategic consultant with McKinsey and Company. Einat has a BA from Harvard, an MBA from INSEAD in France, and a PhD in political science from the University of Cambridge. She is the author of seven books that explore key issues in Israeli society. Most recently, The War of Return, how Western indulgence of the Palestinian dream has obstructed the path to peace. Einat and I talk about her childhood dream of being Israel's ambassador to the United Nations, why so many people hate and or misunderstand Israel, and what she describes as the therapeutic power of Zionism. Take a listen. Einat, did you ever think that you'd be doing what you're doing now, being an, I wouldn't call you an advocate. You're not really an advocate in a traditional sense. You're more of a sort of an explainer of what (laughs) Israel and Zionism is to the world. But is there something that brought you to that? Did you ever imagine? That part, actually, I would say is very much what I wanted. And as a teenager, I had an overwhelming ambition, which was to be Israel's ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, When, yes, when I was a teenager, Benjamin Netanyahu was the ambassador. And I remember thinking, okay, this is very cool. I would read all of Abba Eben's books. um, And in many ways, actually, both of their trajectories influenced my decision uh, to go abroad, to study in an American university, Um, So kind of I I thought to fashion myself a bit looking at their background and saying, okay, if I want to be a voice for Israel, Zionism, the Jewish people, these are the kinds of things I need to have, uh, such as, you know, a top notch foreign education or the English language. And uh, and that was very much an aspiration. I remember once going. in Herzliya, uh, close to the beach, there's an Abba Ibn street. And if you read underneath Abba Ibn, it says, I think it says a voice to the Jewish people or something like that. He was a voice to the Jewish people. And I remember even taking a photo of that street sign thinking, great, I love that definition. This is something I aspire to do. So I've always been fascinated by the intersection of 
Israel, the Jewish people, and the world at large. And I always wanted to place myself somehow in that intersection. So I might have been surprised to find out that I'm doing it informally rather than formally. <laughs> uh, because again, as a teenager, I imagined myself doing it in a more for- formal capacity. And, you know, it was not yet the era of the internet and social media. So I think it was almost difficult to imagine of being able to do something like that informally in any effective or substantial way. So perhaps right. that would have been the more surprising. But you're, but the, this is not flattery. I mean, it's true. You, you're more like Ava Evan now that, that the actual Israel ambassador to the UN, not criticism. <laughs> I mean, in the sense that uh, here's what I'm going with this. Like, there was a time, like there was those diplomats like Kava Evan and Chaim Herzog. There were people that combined this erudition and this worldliness um, with Israel, with Israel's case, and they framed Israel's case as a liberal democratic cause, and and that's kind of what you're doing. And it's not always what the actual Israeli ambassador to the UN is doing. I mean, they, they, they don't have the sophistication that they have, and they don't, and the message is a different one. I can all only say thank you. I mean, this has been, as I said, it's been purposeful. It's been a lot of hard work, but it's also been genuine. From a very young age, I felt that mm. this is the story of Israel. It's not, I've never thought in a kind of calculated way, okay, how do I best make the case for Israel? Okay, I'm going to use this angle or that angle. It's always been very genuine. I felt in my bones, in the way that I live, that Zionism, Israel has been a liberating cause. It's been a liberating cause in my life. Uh, I've been able to appreciate it, and therefore I've been able to speak about it as such a cause, not a kind of, not in a calculated manner, but just one that I think is is one that feels very authentic to me. So one of the one of the themes you go back to a lot is that Israel plays sort of a role in the world's imagination that has very little to do with the actual issues of Israel. Like Israel is sort of a, sort of a an emblem of of other things. And and do 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 you want to expand a little bit on that? Uh, certainly, I think it's one of the things that immediately becomes apparent is that when you're in Israel, you have an experience of Israel as a country. You know, it's right. a place and you go shopping and you go to the beach and there's politics and it's a country and it's a place and just normal things happen here. And then when you go abroad and you begin to realize, first of all, the level of interest and obsession. And then just the kind of the words, the ideas, the disconnect is so major that at one point you begin to ask, what's your problem rather than what's our problem? And I remember actually having that as a literal moment. It was quite a few years ago. I was just beginning to do more speaking. It was at Harvard. And I remember, you know, I come from the Israeli left, very much opposed to settlements, a member of the Labor Party, supporter of two states. And, you know, that was a while ago. That was really on the agenda. And I remember at one point speaking and, you know, talking about the two state solution, the settlements and my position. And 
And at one point, I remember almost getting this visceral feeling from the audience of this intense anger and hatred. And I remember almost stopping short in the middle of the talk and saying, it isn't about the settlements, right? Because I remember kind of thinking, I'm discussing policy and what's relevant and whether something is productive or helpful and how we get to peace. But what I'm getting from the other side is these kind of mix of intense feelings that I'm saying there's a gap here between saying, okay, what really matters is policy and settlements and what's really going on. And that I think began for me an exploration that continues to this day between what people say their problem is with Israel compared to what their real problem is and increasingly an understanding that it's not about Israel, it's actually about those that are that are obsessed with Israel. The question should be turned to them rather than to Israel. So, so what's their problem? <laughs> Let me put it this way. I remember when I started to, to think about it, and of course, a lot of the way that I think is to try to look at things historically. Right. And I remember thinking, okay, when we see rise in hatred and obsession with Jews, is it ever because the Jews did something different? You know, is there a difference between the Jews of the 10th century and the 11th century when the Crusades started? Did the Jews suddenly do something different? And you're saying, okay, no, there were problems with the papal states and all that. You're saying, okay, the problem was there. And right. kind of when you take the zoom out and you look at history and saying the rise in Jew hatred and obsession with Jews and scapego scapegoating Jews was never because Jews did something different. Right. It's because the society that was being obsessive and scapegoating went through a crisis of its own. So remember that for me, this was a moment of realization that one needs to turn the tables because the question is almost never, what have the Jews done, but rather what have those who are obsessed, who are scapegoating Jews, what are they undergoing that they feel the need to reach for that scapegoat? And I think once you frame it this way, a lot of things become clear because when you're asking, okay, what's the problem with the society that is experiencing this spike, this rise and this obsession, once you ask that question, then a lot of things begin to open up because you understand that typically the societies that reach for the scapegoat are societies in crisis, typically yeah. a crisis of identity, of uncertainty, a sense you don't know who you are, what you are, you don't know what to grasp at anymore. And when there's a sense of uncertainty and crisis and no sense of identity, then you grasp for ancient certainties. And right. one of the most ancient certainties <laughs> is the, the Jews. Jews did it, right? Yeah, the Jews, Jews did, did it. it. That's at least something you can count on. But but isn't there isn't there anything else, right? Like, uh, is there something else in the sense that, in a way, Israel is a way of having the epic fight on the cheap, meaning, meaning it was complicated to be an IRA, you know, terrorist in Ireland. It was complicated to fight apartheid in, in South Africa. And now if you want that epic 
feeling of uh, doing something and seeing justice in the world, you sit on your couch and you tweet and you talk, you know, about Israel and it doesn't cost you anything and it gives you the same sense of righteousness, right? So by the way, that is related. I mean, if yeah. you look uh, at generally kind of the history of obsession, scapegoating of Jews, a big part of it was that there, there was very little consequence to uh, scapegoating the Jews. Right. Uh, in that sense, what you're saying, it has historically, unfortunately, been a very cheap way uh, right. to to kind of engage in that sense that you know what's going on in the world and to feel that you're on the righteous side and that you're on the side of good. Uh, and you're absolutely right that uh, a big part of it is also the desire to have that sense of righteousness in a world where, again, you're not that sure what's righteousness anymore. <laughs> um, I remember uh, for uh, I remember you mentioned Ireland, and I, yeah. I got this sense especially, and I wrote about it when I visited Ireland, Northern Ireland, and Ireland and South Africa. If you visit Northern Ireland or in Ireland, you will notice that the Catholics have decided that they're the Palestinians. Right. As a result, the Protestants. <laughs> decided that they're Israelis. You can go in Belfast and you'll see a lot of Palestinian flags and some Israeli flags. And I remember meeting with members of parliament in Sinn Féin and, and hearing them say all these things. And I remember at one point saying, it's not about us, right? Like you right. literally <laughs> don't know what's going on in Israel. You just, you know, you've not, you haven't yet worked out your feelings. You kind of, you signed the Good Friday agreements, but you still hate each other. <laughs> right. So now you're just channeling this uh, through us. You, and, you're hating, you're hating each other by proxy by hating us. Oh, totally. And now it's legitimate. And in South Africa, I remember feeling the same way. If you visit South Africa, you realize that the whole thing that they've sold the world, you know, post-apartheid rainbow nation. Again, you realize the yeah, vast it's a fiction, between, right? Yeah. yeah, that image. And, you know, on the ground, apartheid continues in so many ways and certainly the legacy of it and the continuing gaps. And you realize the the problems that the society of South Africa faces on issues of inequality and poverty and health and education. OK, and then I meet with students there. And what are they really invigorated about, excited about fighting apartheid Israel? And I'm thinking, right. okay, I get it. And you also, you're, you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, I totally get it. Your parents got to actually fight apartheid and they paid a real price. Right. They had the glory at the end, but they also had real suffering. And you are now the, the generation that is left with all the grunt work. Education, inequality, poverty, there's no glory in that. So you prefer to ignore your local problems and just commit yourself to fighting apartheid Israel. There's a lot of that. I have a colleague who gave it a wonderful name. He called it a Disneyland of hate. Right. Because said it's a bit like a roller coaster. Like a roller coaster, you get to feel the, to feel the thrill right. of fear, but you know that it's It's not really hate. dangerous. Now, now, now so let me shift, shift gears for a minute, because when you were talking about these young South Africans, I was remembering a, a song, I think it was by Jonathan Geffen, it said, Omrim Shaya Postameach Lifnei Sheigati. Yeah. 
Like he was yeah. happy here. Like it was about the the epic, yes. you know, times of Israel building and the new generation. I mean, he was writing that in the 80s, but even more now, you know, that don't feel that epic thing. It isn't, you know, isn't a little of that happening to us too? Like we we don't really, I mean, we don't really believe that Israel is in danger anymore. Now it's more of a, of a grinding, tiring work of improving society and doing things. And that's not that much fun. <laughs> <laughs> so for sure, there's an element of that. My first book, the one that really got me writing, was about Israel's, about my generation at the time, yeah. the young generation. And I spoke precisely about that, that sense of boredom. Aviv Geffen is from my generation. I remember in the 80s complaining to my parents. I was like, "You ha- all the swamps have been dried. All the good <laughs> wars have been fought. You know, my generation got this, the, the wars that sucked. You know, the ones that where there was like no glory was like intifadas, Lebanon. Right. It's all gray. There's no black and white. So yeah, there's definitely a sense that we were born too late to the epic moment. And look, at the end of the day, there will not be an epic moment such as the establishment of Israel or even the the Six-Day War. I do believe still we have epic days ahead, especially ones that have to do with uh, achieving final integration of Israel into the region and peace, and who knows how far ahead those days are. But I think a way that I reconciled myself a bit to being a bit too late to the party is this notion that yes, on a daily level, it's not the same drama and excitement of uh, 15, 100 years ago, but we are still living in a pretty remarkable age. Like in, in the total span of Jewish history, we are living in quite a remarkable moment of really Jewish prosperity and Jewish yeah. power. And I know as soon as somebody starts to say that, Jews are all like, you know, foot, 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 and chamsa, chamsa. And, and you know, we're not allowed <laughs> to, to think about how good things are. This is the last thing a Jewish person should do. But I, I kind of look at the fact that we are living in remarkable times on a broader scale. And, it, and it's really interesting what you're saying because as non-Jews want to replicate the epic of their forefathers, you know, foreparents fight on, on these, many Jews try to falsely replicate the epic of the Six-Day War or the 48 War on Twitter. <laughs> they think like <laughs> doing advocacy and being vicious about it is their part of the fight. And it's not, right? The part of the fight is just, you know, working on the daily improvement of Israel? So I will actually say both. I don't think one negates the other. Mm -hmm. No doubt the paramount work is the daily slog of making Israel better and stronger and more just. But I do think that we cannot neglect the fact that Israel is still and a substantial part of the world and substantial parts of it is still considered something that does not make sense, should not exist. And the battle to change hearts and minds against Israel is a very real one. 
And in that I have dedicated my life to that battle. And I do it because I think it does matter. Uh, and I think it matters precisely because it goes to the core of Israel. I think that sometimes I say that uh, anti-Zionists uh, understand Israel better than most, because I think they understand that this is the core of Israel's strength, that Israel is ultimately strong, not because of its military and the tanks and the airplanes, and not even because of the economy and not even the people. I think Israel is strong because of the idea. The power of the idea has mobilized people and still does to great feats and, and right. to, you know, to do wonderful things. If you destroy the idea, if you make Zionism into a toxic idea, into something that no one wants to associate with, that young people feel they want to distance themselves, then I genuinely believe that just as the construction of Israel followed the idea, then the destruction of Israel can follow the idea. So in that sense, people who go on Twitter and on campuses and they write and they speak in defense of Zionism, in defense of the Jewish right to self-determination, I do think that it's not just some reproduction of epic battles. I do think that it does matter in the present. And 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 what is from your experience? Because like one of the battles I fight every day, I mean, working with funders is like a lot of folks want to do the right thing and want to advocate. And but I I do find that some of the some of the messages and the means we use are, are sometimes counterproductive. Like they're they're they 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 use the wrong you know spokespeople. They they use the wrong message. They don't understand how the logic of influence on social media works. They don't understand people in campuses, so they, 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 they do messages that turn them off instead of inspire them. So what have you found that works? The thing that I found most that works is to go to the heart of the matter. Um, and for years now, one of the things that I've been quite annoyed with have been Wait, very, say, say more. Say more. What yeah, do you mean? Go I'll to explain the heart of, to go to okay. the heart of the matter. To the heart of the matter uh, is to address directly the question of Zionism and anti-Zionism rather than try to go around it. Uh, for years, there have been efforts to just go around the issue. I remember, for example, when the campaign started many years ago, was also started in Israel's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but generally the idea was Israel beyond the conflict. You know, we're doing so many great things. Uh, there's so much innovation here. There's wonderful things, you know, let's just talk talking about the conflicts. Let's talk about all the wonderful things that Israel says, uh, that Israel does. And what happened was this. So you'd have all these delegations come to Israel and they will look at the innovation and high tech and really be very impressed with all the innovation and technology in Israel. And then they would go to the West Bank and they would hear apartheid, genocide, and they would be like, okay, they'd put two and two together and be like, oh, so Israel has a high tech apartheid. Because <laughs> we were basically having one kind of conversation and the other side was having a very different kind of conversation. And I've seen over the years when 
when I said that, you know, there's just no way, no way around Zionism, you know, you can't uh, try to say, okay, let's find words that are pro-Israel or why use that word? You know, it's become toxic. It's become unpleasant. And I remember saying it's become toxic because the other side has been working very, very hard for a very long time to make it toxic. It's not an accident that it's become toxic. And if we're going to yield, then the other side is not going to go home. They're going to make sure that whatever the next word or the next idea we use is going to be made toxic as well, because they have a far greater agenda, which is, again, to destroy the very idea that has led us to be sovereign. Uh, So my response was, we have to go all into the core. We need to understand Zionism. We need to embrace Zionism. And we need to expose the other side for its sinister agenda, because there's just no goodwill there. And when we make assumption of goodwill, we're allowing conversations to take place that are absolutely wrong. I'm I'm writing a big piece about it now, but when I just finished uh, when I finished uh, teaching the course just now in Georgetown as a visiting professor, the course was aptly named Zionism and Anti-Zionism. And at the end of the class, one of the Jewish students told me that this course was more valuable to her than dozens of hours of therapy. <laughs> and I think, and we we've talked about it since a lot, and I've, I'm now writing about it what she finally was able to touch is the therapeutic power of Zionism is to actually realize again, to unmask the anti-Zionist agenda for what it is and to get in touch with the core of Zionism in the way that gave her the backbone that was so sorely needed. Right. But but the anti-Zionist, I sometimes feel that the anti-Zionist agenda is really not about Israel. I mean, we we said that it's not about Israel and it's about conflicts that people are experiencing in their own countries. And but it's also not so much about Israel as it is about the role, the role that Jews should have in society. In other words, like Parami says, like, who cares what an undergrad on Georgetown feels about Israel? Israel exists, the country which has more population than Norway, Denmark, and Holland. Uh, it's you know the it's a powerful country that Zionism like you can think whatever you want but then you hear that Jewish student who says that her identity is being challenged because of the anti-Zionist message and you realize that maybe the target is not Israel but it's her you know what I'm trying to say like like who really suffers from the anti-Zionism no, really, Israel. Israel. I don't think Israel even notices. It's 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 Jews in the diaspora. So we're actually the ultimate target is Israel. The reason that the ultimate target is Israel is precisely because Israel is powerful, because Israel is what gives Jews the ability to defend themselves. Uh, there's a famous saying by Ephraim Kishon. No one has ever written about Israel better than him. Um, he has a great phrase where he says, unfortunately, the establishment of Israel did not cure the world of its anti-Semitism. You know, that was the Herzlian yeah. ideal. But it finally gave the Jews the, op- the possibility to tell the anti-Semites to shove it. 
So there's this notion. I mean, so the ultimate target is Israel because Israel is the bastion of power where Jews have been able to assemble to defend themselves by themselves. And that's a problem. But in order to ultimately get to Israel, and as I said, you don't, they try to get to Israel via tanks and airplanes and they failed. And what they realized is, again, it's not about the tanks, it's not about the airplanes, it's about the people in the tanks and airplanes who believe that Jewish sovereignty is something worth fighting for. So you need to get those people to stop believing that it's worth fighting for. And the way that you do that is you peel away the various circles of support for that idea. And one of the main circles of support are Jews abroad. And they are clearly uh, today one of the main targets of the rise of anti-Zionism. Right. Uh, and you're right, most people in Israel don't feel it. They don't, under, they, they, they don't suffer from it. They don't understand what's going on because again, they live in the citadel, so they right. don't feel it. Um, yeah, but but I mean to probe a little bit, you know, Zionism is this deeply liberal democratic movement, you know, built on the on the basis of liberal democratic nationalism of Europe. You know, Giuseppe Mazzini and and all those folks in uh, in the nineteenth century. But one could ask, in good faith, whether things like the occupation and the failure to reach a two-state solution, uh, doesn't that corrupt a little bit the essence of Zionism? You see somebody like like Ben Gvir running for parliament, and that's the villain in Herzl's book. You know, Rabbi Geyer is like, you can translate him to Smotrich and Ben Gvir. So, uh, I mean, I get the demonization of Israel with an anti-Zionist, anti-Semitic agenda, but what can we do to the weakening of Zionism from the inside, from its own from its own issues? So first on the issues such as the occupation and the inability to achieve a two-state solution, this is a lot of the work that I did for the book, The War of Return, together with my co-writer, Adi Schwartz, where unfortunately, the reason that Israel, despite repeated attempts to and its military control of uh, the West Bank and Gaza, despite numerous efforts to reach agreements for partition of an Arab state of Palestine next to a state of a Jewish state of Israel, have all been rebuffed because the core principle of the Palestinian identity, backed by still a large share of the Arab and Islamic world, is anti-Zionism. Uh, I have this whole talk in which I talk, what is the conflict really about? And I say, look, it's actually not a complicated conflict. Uh, this Everyone always says, look, it's complicated. We want people to understand how complicated it is. It's not. It's maybe complicated in the details, what happened in which year. But the conflict is about the simplest in the world. It's the conflict between Jewish Zionists and Arab anti-Zionists. That's it. That's the conflict in one sentence. And it's a conflict where there's no there's no middle ground. Either Jewish Zionists lose or Arab anti-Zionists forgo anti-Zionism and stop uh, basically mobilizing all their resources uh, to the non-existence of a Jewish state. 
So actually, the fact that anti-Zionists have engaged in a century-long battle to against Zionism cannot be used as an argument against Zionism. That's sometimes a very bizarre situation where I find people say, the occupation still continues, so Zionism is no longer legitimate. And I'm like, the occupation continues because the anti-Zionists have refused every option of ending it if it meant that Zionism gets to stand, if the Jews still get to have their state. This is what the battle is about. So you can't use it as an argument. Right. Say that Zionism is illegitimate. Uh, you're just playing into the hands of what the anti-Zionists have been trying to do for over a century. So that's in terms of those specific issues. And in that sense, Zionism continues to be a very, very liberal and willing to compromise movement. By the way, not because we have some great moral agenda, it's because we're small. Now, wait a second. The, the anti-Zionists didn't force us to build settlements. And I lived in one, so I'm not really, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm saying like, I mean, that's a way of entrenching occupation that has nothing to do with the Palestinians. It has to do with a vision of Zionism that is not the, I would call, original vision of Zionism. So let's talk about the settlements. It's actually a great opportunity because I'm I'm completely opposed to the settlements. I think it's been Israel's most wasteful pro, uh, project. If they stop tomorrow, I would be most happy. But precisely because this is my position, I'm also able to explain very clearly why the existence of settlements is not the reason we don't have peace. This is one of the most easy things to prove empirically, for empirical proofs quickly. Before 67, as I'm sure you know, there's not a single yeah. settlement. The West Bank and uh, Gaza are under Egyptian and uh, Jordanian control. And yet the Arab world and the Palestinians still say no to a Jewish state. So it's not the settlement. Second, Ehud Barak, Ehud Olmert put proposals on the table for peace for a Palestinian state with no settlement. Settlements either to be dismantled or exchanged for equivalent land. Arafat and Abu Mazen still walk away. So the problem is not settlements. Third, Israel has shown itself incredibly capable. It's stupid, I agree, to build and then destroy, but Israel has proven itself ruthlessly capable of taking down settlements in the Sinai, in Gaza, in the Northern West Bank, and we will do so again for peace. And fourth is even after 55 years of control of the West Bank, 80% of the settlers live in 2% of the territory adjacent to the Green Line, the ratio of Jews to Arabs in the West Bank is the same one that it was in the 90s. Nothing has changed. The map is fundamentally the same. The same Palestinian state that was possible in the 90s, if we believed in it then, then it's possible now. So again, settlements are not the reason we don't have peace. So now you can ask a different question. Are they helping the cause of peace and Zionism or not? And here, this is a debate that I have with people. I think they're undermining it. I think they're counterproductive. But I have colleagues who say, no, as long as Palestinians say no, no to any kind of agreement with a Jewish state, we have a legitimate claim to the land. 
until they are willing to make peace, we will realize at least part of our legitimate claim. Uh, it will show them that we believe that this is our land as much as theirs. I mean, but then you're talking about practical debate about whether this helps or doesn't help. Right. But that is a very, very different debate from the big moral issue that people have made it. I 100% agree with you that the settlements are not the obstacle to peace. And as you well noticed, the PLO was formed in 1964, so you know, three years before any settlement were built. And, and the issue really is not Hebron, but Haifa, you know, so that, that, that I'm 100% with you. I'm more concerned about what it does to the Israeli psyche, what it does to the Israeli ethos um, than, than about, you know, what it does to the peace process, which is, as, as, you, as you, you know, very clearly explained, is not the obstacle. And, and, and I'm wondering whether that is just one example of a fight that is happening within Israel and within the Zionist movement on what is Zionism today? What is the character of Zionism today? Is it still that liberal democratic vision that Herzl had, or is some kind of a tribalist, ethnocentric, urbanite type of vision? So I'll take it from a couple directions. First, yeah. the reason that I'm actually very little worried about any notion of kind of Israel veering in this, you know, very, uh, people say, fascist direction is, first of all, our numbers. At the end of the day, one of the things that governs us above everything is the numbers. I have this data that I love to say, you know, when Israel was established in 1948, the ratio of Jews to Arabs in the region is one to 50, five zero. So what do we do? We ask Jews from all over the world to immigrate. Over 3 million come from then to the present. We make a lot of babies. As I'm sure you know, Israel is the wealthiest fertile country in the world. Great. We are more than 10 times the number of Jews we were in 1948. The ratio of Jews to average in the region today is 1 to 60, 6 zero. <laughs> so they've been busy too, right? So fundamentally, the Jews are destined to be an ethnic, religious, national, linguistic minority in an overwhelming Arab and Islamic region, which means that we will always compromise. Right-wing ministers left, it literally doesn't matter who's in power, any Jewish prime minister and party will compromise uh, if they believe that the future of Israel and Zionism can be truly secured with peace with the region in exchange for land. So I think here that the reality of our minority status in the region is more important than any individual operating within Israeli politics. And then I have my little favorite thing, you know, when people sometimes say, you know, Israel is becoming fascist and fascism and Ben-Gvir. And my favorite phrase is that Italian fascism was always more Italian than it was ever fascism. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, those were. Uh, I said, uh, I said that I said, what's the difference between the fascists, the fascists and the Nazis? That the Nazis were German and the Italians were Italian. Precisely yeah. right. When when the Nazis needed to actually get Jews to die in Italy, they had to conquer Italy, their ally. Right because the Italians could be trusted to do that. Right. In the same way, we're Jews. One of our most 
fundamental characteristics, going back to Abraham, is insane argumentativeness. This right. is who we are as a society, as a people, as a country. I think people totally exaggerate. And in many ways, the argumentative element is also why you have some voices that are unpleasant. The paradox of Israeli society is that Israel today is more democratic than it's ever been in the sense that we now have the widest diversity of voices being heard in Israeli society, in parliament, in the media. But it also means, because of this diversity of voices, that some of these voices are not liberal, are not democratic with a small d. They have different values. So this is the paradox that sometimes confuses people. Because Israeli society is more democratic and more inclusive than ever, it also means that some liberal and non-democratic voices are being heard. So, right. But I will just say this, they are far less important than the dominant fact of our minority status in the region. So let, let's shift back to something that you wrote about that for me was kind of the most interesting insight, one of the most that, that I've heard about how people talk about the conflict. And, and, and by the way, it's kind of interesting because we, we veered into talking about the conflict. For me, it's not so interesting talking about the conflict. It's more interesting talking about how we talk about the conflict rather, exactly. right? Because I think, it's, yeah. but, but one, of the thing, one of the ways we talk about the conflict is by applying categories of the of American conf, you know complex situations like race and 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 you know to the Israeli reality and and you you wrote a lot about it and 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 I think that the insight you have there is that in a way talking about Israelis as white oppressors and Palestinians as black or brown you know oppressed is is in a way colonialistic and, and racist because it's a very different conflict. Yeah. Uh, so I called it neocolonialism because it's a very American phenomena to look at the rest of the world uh, through the prism of race and especially to look at this conflict, which someone recently told to me, and I thought that was insightful in a way, he said, a not the conflict is a domestic Israeli issue, really. That goes back to how we began our conversation, that it's not really about Israel and the truth and reality of Israel. But it is a neocolonial attitude. And the fact that it has this kind of notion that Amer what happens in America somehow is relevant to understanding what happens halfway around the world. And by the way, I don't think, think it's just a problem for our conflict. I think it's responsible for quite a few foreign policy and uh, military disasters of America because right. America looks at other parts of the world through its understanding of itself. And right now, a lot of the discourse in America is about race and the things have flipped. You know, being white is now bad. Uh, being a person of color is now basically the conveyor of good. And as the role of Israel in some circles. So, so just surprisingly went from not being white to being white as as being white became something bad. Now Jews are white. 
Precisely. And Which again, we never when, were, but you know. Exactly. When you have any sense of history, when you realize the moment that Jews were suddenly called Semitic, a whole yeah. race was being invented in order to tell Jews that they were different from Europeans. The irony being that when the idea of Jews as a Semitic race, you know, many Jews have been in Europe more than some Europeans were in Europe who came with the Mongol invasions. Um, When you realize how that process operated, then it's very easy for you to see how it's operating. Again, Jews are being designated as something which they themselves did not do. You know, Jews did not designate themselves as the Semitic race. Europeans did that as a way of telling the Jews, you still don't belong here even if it's a secular scientific age. And now you see this process happening again, Jews now being conveniently labeled as white because now we need Jews to be the evil, especially Zionists, Israel to be evil, and white is now evil. And and you see it also, again, if you have any sense of history, I remember the first time that Zionism was compared to white supremacy. And that was let's say a few years ago, and I'm thinking, okay, so we started with colonialism and imperialism, and then it went into apartheid and genocide, and now it's white supremacy. And you realize the changing words have nothing to do with what's happening in Israel, and they have everything to do with what's considered the evil of the moment. And if white supremacy has become the designator of evil at the moment, then that's what we slap on Israel. But of course, it has nothing to do with what's going on in Israel. The obvious thing to begin with is that Jews and Arabs in the land uh, look very similar. To the extent that race is means anything, one thing is clear, clear Jews and Arabs do not form two separate races. Right. The notion of color as being an element in this conflict uh, the note. I mean, all of these things are entirely imported, and the reason also that I called it neocolonial is w- that this was a strong feeling for me. I, I basically remember thinking, "So you decided who I am, and then you're telling me based on your decision that I'm evil, and do I even get a say here?" And there was really the sense of like, "I don't even get a say in this." I mean, and that's not why only I that, have a say. Yeah, and not only not only that is is in a way. It flattens the specificity of the conflict. It's, it's actually a disservice to the Palestinians too, because the Palestinians <laughs> they have the right to their own <laughs> struggle. In other words, you know, and, and Israel may be messed up, but it messed up in its own ways, not in the same ways that America is messed up. You know, and we have that right. We have <laughs> the right to be messed up in our own ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so let me. Let, let me ask you more in general. What what are the the readings, the, the role models? The, I mean, you mentioned Aviva, and but what are the what are the the concept that most formed your vision of Zionism and of nationalism and your general understanding of history? And so, certainly, my go-to person is Herzl. I've spent quite a few years with him. I've always wanted to get his story, especially to to Americans and American Jews, 
I've always been surprised. I remember when I started speaking about Israel and Zionism, especially in the West, I remember realizing that there's this common story in the West, even among people who love Israel, that pretty much goes like this. You know, the final solution was not so final. So there were unfortunately some leftover Jews. Europe didn't know what to do with these leftover Jews. It, it controlled the Levant. So it threw the Jews into its colonial positions in the Levant. The Jews, as a result, pushed out the Palestinians. And that's kind of the story. And, you know, it's all because of the Holocaust and guilt ridden European nations. And you will notice that a lot of the things I care about is the agency of the Jews, that the fact that right. we determine our future. And I get very worked up when I feel that our agency is being taken away from us. And that also felt to me something that takes away our agency. I'm like, hey, hold on. We actually built the state before, before World War the II. Holocaust, right. Before right. World War II, a state was ready. And if yeah. the Arab anti-Zionists had not opposed it, just like Iraq and Syria and Lebanon and Jordan, we would have achieved independence in the 20s and 30s uh, and have been able to open our gates to Jews seeking to flee Europe. Imagine if Israel could participate in the Evian conference in 1938 and say, we'll take them, we want right. them. So the notion that Israel is some gift to the Jews by guilty European nations was something that I totally had to take down. Not least because the last thing that European nations felt after the Holocaust is any guilt. It took right. them a few generations and even that is still not clear. So the, the story of Herzl for me was a great way to bring out the idea that Zionism is about our agency. We rose up, we decided to do that. We built it, uh, we had it ready. And if there had not been such violent opposition, we would have had it ready in time. So for me, Herzl, his vision, his ideas, I even ended writing a screenplay, which one day I hope will be realized. Yeah, story a Netflix show. Yes, I want his story to be known. He's still the person that I think, if you want to understand Zionism, what it emerges from, what's in response to, how we thought about it, what it means to be a people and a nation. You know, sometimes people say, oh, Israel is veering into ethno-nationalism. I'm like, what other nationalism is there? I mean, we're a people, we're an ethnic, we're a tribe, and we want a state where we govern ourselves by ourselves, not exclusively, but Clearly, it's about being a people and a nation, and Herzl was very clear about that. He is the person that I continuously turn to when I want to think about Zionism all the way to the present day. Are you more of a Jewish state person or an Alt-Neuland person? Meaning, <laughs> and the way, the way I'm making this distinction, these are, of course, two main books that Herzl wrote. The Jewish state is his plan for a state that will protect and give the Jews the possibility of living normal lives. The Alt Neuland is his more utopian book about Jews creating a polity that would be a light onto the nation and and sort of and sort of a, a putting in practice of all the highest values of humanity. Sort of a gift. The Jewish state is a gift to the world. The, the Jewish. In the Judenstadt, the Jewish state is needed for the Jews. In Altneuland, the Jewish state is a gift to the world. So where do you stand in that dichotomy? 
so if I had to choose, uh, clearly the one that at the end of the day, it's about the Jews. You know, my Zionism informs my feminism. My feminism informs my Zionism. There's this famous phrase that when a mediocre woman will ascend to the highest position, we know that feminism has succeeded. In the same way, sometimes people say, you know, if Israel is not this utopian, light onto the nations, perfect nation, then it wasn't worth it. And I'm like, uh-uh, even if we're a middling, you know, middle of the road, which we're not, we're actually in practice, we're amazingly much closer to the utopian vision. Right. But for me, it's important as a matter of principle to say that the utopia is not to, the condition to, for our legitimacy. It, the Jews yeah. have the right to govern themselves by themselves, even if it's going to be a shitty country. <laughs> it's like it's like that essay from uh, Isaiah Berlin, The Cost of Curing an Oyster. It says, you know, he says basically Jews were so unique, but their uniqueness stemmed from an illness in a way. The mm -hmm. same way that oyster produce pearls when they are subject to an illness, to a to a yeah. to a to a pollution, right? Yeah. So what you subject an entire colony of oysters to a to a disease, one produces an oyster. So so Berlin says you basically subject the entire Jewish people to the disease of exile and persecution, and you produce an and an, a pearl. You produce a an Einstein, a Kafka, a Freud, but the cost of that is the disease that the entire people is subjected to. So he says, what if the oysters said, we just want to be oysters. We if if the cost <laughs> is to if the cost is to forego the pearl, fine, we will. We'll just live happy oyster life. And and this is a so if Israel was only the cost of curing an oyster, he'd be happy with it. And it's kind of similar to what you're saying. Of course, yes, Israel I mean, still produces the pearl, so it's not exactly. Not really I mean, bad. I think but the amazing didn't. Yeah, but exactly, I, it produces pearls. As I said, I think we operate actually at a level much closer to the utopia Herzl had in mind. But for me, it's important to say that's a great motto. If we want to be oysters, we'll be oysters, and it's nobody's business. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now, so from what you know, what the philanthropic field. Um, around the world, what would be your message or your suggestion to funders that want to be effective in supporting Israel and fighting demonization of Israel? What, what do you think they should be doing and they shouldn't be doing? So this is not my specialty, which is why I mostly write and think and speak, but there's two things that I've noticed. One, is touch the molten lava of Zionism. Don't run away from it. I feel that more and more organizations are finally getting to that understanding after trying to run away for quite a few years. And two, there's a lot of young people who are doing amazing things on their own, social media, being just activists. Um, I would encourage to the extent possible a much more informal structure that you know doesn't ask them to jump through hoops and organizations, just tells them, look, we've loved what you've been doing, uh, take money for two years and just keep doing it. Mm -hmm. um, I would love to see much more of that because I think there's 
I, I see I see so many of them. I work with so many of them. And you know, they're doing it when they have another day job and they're struggling. And I'm thinking, if someone would just come up to them and say, for the next two years, just keep doing that. You don't have to be worried. Um, I think that could be wonderful to at least do that as well with the organizational stuff. Just to finish, what what is the one thing that gives you most hope about the future? Amazingly, the Arab world. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the greatest hope I see at the moment is with the Abraham Accords, uh, with the rise of something I've come to call Arab or Islamic Zionism. For the first time in a century, we have proud, confident Arab voices, states, people who are rejecting decades of anti-Zionism. They understand that it's been useless, a complete diversion of valuable resources. They want to build a future for the Arab and Islamic world that is moderate, that embraces Israel. They don't have patience for the uselessness of anti-Zionism. So these days, and for the last two, three years, much more of my hope is coming from the Arab world uh, than it is from the West. Thanks so much to Einat Wilf. You can learn more about her and find her books at wilf.org-english. Thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, but also guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us. Write to us at communications at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at atspokoini. Since we're talking about Zionism, I gotta leave you with a quote from Theodor Herzl. He said, the world will be liberated by our freedom, enriched by our wealth, magnified by our greatness, and whatever we attempt there for our own benefit will redound mightily and beneficially to the good of all humankind. So keep improving yourself, keep improving your people, and keep benefiting the world, and keep giving, and see you next time on What Gives. Thank you.